worthy to be praised. You can be seated. Amen. If you have your Bibles, take them to Mark's Gospel, chapter number 15. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 15. We have been looking at the Passion Week of the Lord Jesus over the past few weeks. We saw His triumphal entry. We saw His investigation of the temple and all that implicated there. We saw their con- His confrontation with the religious elite of His day. We saw Jesus in, in the upper room, in His betrayal, and in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and in His betrayal. And we saw uh, those, that day uh, recently, I think last weekend. So this, oh no, last week we looked at the day of mediation. And I told you that this final day, whether whatever you believe, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday, I, I hear different things, I have my own personal convictions about that, but whatever day it was, we find it, I'm going to break it up into two. And we looked at his, his, his trial in the first day of mediation, how that Jesus stood condemned, and by that became a mediator for us. He stood the judgment that we rightfully deserve. So that's part of the day of mediation. And now the second part, we look at his crucifixion. We could say the first part was condemnation, the second part was crucifixion. And so we're going to look at that second part of the day of mediation today from Mark chapter number 15 and verses 15 through 39. I know this is an extended portion of Scripture and uh, my reading is oftentimes not as pleasant to the ear as many others, but I, I do think it merits our reading. If we're going to look at the landscape of the cross, let us take it all in in one view at the beginning. Mark chapter 15 and verse number 15. We'll read down through verse number 39. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they, and they call, uh, called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put on his own clothes, uh, clothes, his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth for Elias. And one man and one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, 
let's see whether Elias will come and, to take him down. Jesus And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that, saw that he so cried he, and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. A day of mediation, Jesus' crucifixion. In an archaeological dig at the city of Pompeii, you know, Pompeii that were many, many uh, hundred, a, thou, uh, uh, a couple thousand years ago was overwhelmed by the volcanic eruption of Mount Vesuvius, I believe it was, and it, it wiped out the whole city. It, it has become an archaeological time capsule because of how the, the city was suddenly buried in molten lava. And so while on that archaeological dig, there was a certain crude graffiti that was preserved on a wall in Pompeii. Uh, the, the graffiti was a cartoonish figure of a man with the head of a donkey affixed to a cross. Before the cross was the figure of a man kneeling as if to worship that cross. Along with the sketch, these words were inscribed to give it meaning. Anaximenes worships his God. Evidently, Anaximenes was a Christian. And because of his worship of the man that was crucified on the cross, he was the butt of jokes with those around him. What kind of God would be crucified to a cross? Even today. Thousands of years later, the cross is still misrepresented and misunderstood. It's now a fashion accessory for all manner of anybody to wear. It's, it's, a, it's, not, not a, it's some sort of religious statement, but it goes beyond that. Even people that would not claim to be Christians wearing these crosses is often a, a point of ridicule. People wear them as a good luck charm or some kind of emblem of piety. But as John MacArthur said, the proof of both the immense love of God and the profound wickedness of sin can be found in the cross. You see, the cross is a line of demarcation between the lost and the found, between the perishing and the saved, between the condemned and the forgiven. What Jesus did on the cross in these hours is far more than what we can explain in the brief time that we have together. But we can conclude by the whole counsel of God's Word that what took place on the cross was a fulfillment of the shadows and sketches of the Old Testament economy of the temple and of the tabernacle. It is the fulfillment of prophetic utterances by subsequent prophets down through the Old Testament. And by that blood-stained cross aloft on Calvary's brow and its owner, pale with death, God has opened up a new and living way. Somehow in the mystery of God's economy, God through the death of His Son, through the veil of His flesh, has opened up a way for every sinful person to make their way to God. Hebrews 9.12 makes it clear. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by Christ's own blood, He entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. There was a gulf that separated between sinful man and a holy God and somehow by the death of God's own Son, a bridge has been made. Paul brings this mediation word. Remember I talked about mediation last week. Mediation is bringing two opposing parties together one opposing party with another, bringing them together. Job called it a daysman, a go-between. Here, the mediation work of Jesus is brought into sharper focus when Paul writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Listen to what he said. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, 
the man Christ Jesus. Listen, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. It is a bridge of access built between sinful men and a holy God. It is the word mediation. And as we look upon the cross in these few verses and attempt to shed light on its wonders, I want us to look closely at a few breathtaking facets of redeeming grace. Now, I'll let you know, I'm not going to deal with Simon of Cyrene. I'm not going to deal with the... Uh, the, the misrepresentation of Jesus' words about Elijah. I don't have time to cover every aspect in our hour, but I do want to hit on four main themes that we see in this section of Scripture at the cross of Jesus Christ. First of all, I want you to see uh, the theme of, oh, how demeaning were the soldiers. How demeaning were the soldiers. During his deliberation over what to do, we saw last week how that Pilate made the greatest injustice of all time. Pilate declared Jesus innocent and yet condemned him to die. After, during that deliberation and making that decision, Pilate had Jesus scourged or whipped. It was mentioned in our text in verse 15, and when he had scourged him, to hand him over to be crucified. The scriptures mention this, but they do so almost in passing. Not really, not really displaying for our 21st century ears what the scourging by Romans entailed. The audience to which Mark wrote to, this is, they believe, the, the earliest gospel, uh, the earliest gospel penned of the Lord Jesus and it was primarily to a Roman audience, a Gentile audience who would read this, they would immediately identify what this scourging meant. But the scourging was a punishment that when inflicted oftentimes killed the person being scourged before they were ever sent to endure the cross. The victim was scourged, uh, the victim of scourging would uh, be stripped of their, of their clothing uh, uh, completely uh, nude in front of a, a large pillar. That pillar would hold them down in like a taut position. They would chain their arms around that so as to stretch the skin of the back open. Then two soldiers uh, uh, bearing these whips, whips in their hand, uh, not long whips, we're not talking about Indiana Jones long whip, we're talking about something about 18, 24 inches long, braided with, it's like I had a, had a handle about 18 inches long, 24 inches long, maybe on the strips of leather, braided together with, with inside the braid bone and nettle and shards of, 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 of glass inside that. And they would, they would take those in one after another as one would lay a stripe and pull back, the other would come down. And they would lay stripe after stripe across the back and the, uh, the back of the victim, the head of the victim, the, the buttocks, the back of the legs, all the way down. And with each stripe, it would rip off the epidermis of the, the skin. It would flay the individual of their outer skin. It is reported that people's bones and internal organs would be seen within the body of those that had been scourged. You could see through the epidermis, through the muscular uh, system, and into the vital organs of the individual. It truly is a wonder with all that Jesus had endured. Now remember, what had Jesus endured? The Garden of Gethsemane where His, where his, uh, his blood, His sweat tur uh, became as great drops of blood. I told you how that's a felicity. A physiological possibility for someone to be under so much stress, so much fear, so much anxiety that the corpuscles underneath the skin burst and they would actually begin to sweat blood over their, over their body. That happened to the Lord Jesus, a loss of blood there. He was brought before others. Uh, he was pummeled before the Sanhedrin, beaten before them, smacked upon him, blindfolded and smacked by the Sanhedrin. And now he comes to this point. It is a wonder that Jesus is even endured these hours to get to the crucifixion and even endure this scourging. 
But not only was the scourging part of the humiliation by these soldiers, but Jesus was turned over to a Roman detail. So Jesus went through the scourging, then from there was given over to the Roman detail to crucify him. So that would have been several soldiers. We read in our text that uh, they, he said that, and the soldiers led him away to the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. So it wasn't just the detail of the Roman soldiers that would take and crucify him. It was the whole band. I don't know, maybe 30 to uh, 40 guys around, hardened Roman soldiers, and, and they begin to mock and ridicule him while the cross was being prepared. They probably heard of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We, we looked at that on the first of our series, how that Jesus came in, and they said, Hail, uh, Hosanna in the highest. Hail him that comes in the name of the Lord. They probably heard the prophecies that are associated with his entry. And, oh, this is a king. He's the king of the Jews. Oh, well, every king's got to have a royal robe. And so they grabbed some old soldier's gaudy military jacket and threw it around the Lord Jesus to be his royal robe. Then, then, oh, listen, every king, if he's the king of the Jews, well, then he's got to have a crown. And so some soldier runs out and, and, and finds a thorn bush and pulls it and, be, and begins to put together uh, uh, the spikes uh, into a, a wreath, a crown, and then, and then jams it on the head of Jesus. Yeah, there's our king. Oh, a king's got to have a crown. Oh, every king needs a scepter. It says that they smote him with the reed. Other texts in Matthew tell us that how that, that scepter was placed in his hand. It was a, a set of reeds which they jerk it from his head and hit him and batter him across the head when he was blindfolded. Who hit you with the reed? And they would put it in his hand to show his so-called power in front of these men. And then, and then it was from there, oh, every king needs an anointing. Oh, the Jews always anoint. Their, let's all anoint this king. And they would they'd clear their throats and expend their spittle down the face of the Lord Jesus off of his beard. How demeaning, how humiliating was this? He who created all things by the word of his mouth, by whose power all things consist and are held together from, from being thrown out into chaos. He who held all these things sat idle, silent, while he was mocked and humiliated. You know whose humiliation should be here? You and I. Amen. Me. Rightful humiliation. Every vile and wicked thought, every deed that I've ever done should be brought to bear before the eyes of a holy God. And if there's anyone that rightfully needed to be humiliated, it was me. Oh, how humiliating all of my life and all of my sin must be. And he who had no sin endured a humiliation that I cannot imagine. How, how demeaning were these soldiers to the Lamb of God. Notice how dreadful was the sentence. In verse 21, we go into Simon of Cyrene. I won't deal with that, but they brought him to Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. We don't know of certainty um, that the reason they named it Golgotha, if you go there today, I believe, if you look upon the very hill that they believe is Golgotha, if you kind of squint your eyes, turn your head sideways, you can kind of see the outline of a skull on the hill. It almost looks like a skull. It may have been called because of that. It may have been called just because it was a place of execution. Oftentimes, when people were crucified, they were left there to die until eventually their bodies would fall from rot and decay from the cross. And therefore, at the base of the cross, dogs would devour what was left of the human being, leaving bones and skulls and, and femurs all around that place. It's a place of death. Maybe they called it that for that reason. But for whatever, whatever the reason, this was a place of execution. It was a place of death. 
It's the place where Jesus' dreadful sentence of crucifixion would be carried out. Look at verse 24. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments. Uh, Mark goes out of his way twice to say they, they crucified him. Verse 24 and 25. They crucified him. Have you ever wondered at why there's so little there? They crucified him. There's not much given. This whole scene was terrifying with its shrieks of horror and its cries of laughter. Soldiers would gamble. We read about this. Soldiers would gamble uh, uh, around at the bottom and, and slap each other on the back and laugh. Mothers would cry and shriek for their children. People on the cross would plead and beg for mercy. But notice how few words and and when they had crucified them, him and crucified him. It seems as though the gospel writers, and it's not just with Mark. You'll go to Luke, you'll go to Matthew, John's gospels. There's not a great detail. The, the, the gospel writers don't go into great detail about everything that took place in crucifying the Lord Jesus. There is very Little. It's almost as though divine inspiration pulls a veil over such a horrific sight. Maybe it was to prevent us from worshiping the suffering instead of the Savior. You know, there are many that do that in, in countries around this time of year when it gets close to the uh, Passion Week and in many Catholic, uh, Catholic nations, nations that uh, follow the teachings of the Catholic Church, the world uh, Roman, Roman Catholic Church, uh, they, they, they glorify all the suffering of Jesus. They will themselves nail themselves to a cross. They will have their own bodies be lashed about. Nowhere near, I believe, of what Jesus would endure. But, but they would glorify this suffering of Jesus and, and place it on a high pedestal. I have failed in my objective today if all you see is a man suffering on a cross in misery. I'm sure many of us have seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ. And it is every gory, graphic detail shows the suffering of the Lord Jesus. And, and I've often talked about many people leaving the theater with eyes filled with tears. No doubt at just the horrid nation, the horrid nature of what took place happening not to Jesus, but to any individual. It would cause us to cry. If we, if we just see the suffering of Jesus, then we're missing the point. I believe in that movie, The Passion of the Christ. I think it was at the very, very end. There was a, a slide or a, a wording at the end. It was Isaiah 53. He bore our sin. Or he, he was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity. That's what ought to make us cry. Not when He was whipped. Not when He was nailed. It should make us cry that He endured so much for us. I would cry if any individual were treated that way. But for Him to do that for me. Oh, we're not just to see misery. We're not just to see uh, suffering here, we're, we're to see substitution. 15, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 26, And the superscription of his accusation was written, The King of the Jews. Amidst all this madness, there was a sign set over Jesus' head. A mockery. Pilate's intent was a mockery. Never forget that. That sign above his head, if we put all the gospel references together, we can get the full, the full implication of that. I'm not going to argue back and forth. I believe it said more than this, but not less than the king of the Jews. But I believe in doing so, this is a mockery. Here's what we do with the kings uh, that are not Caesar. Here's what we do with other kings. Pilate was making a statement. Also with him, verse 27, and they crucified two thieves, one on the right hand and his other on his left. There were on either side of Jesus criminals. People that right or wrong deserved crucifixion. Evidently they had done things the Bible calls them robbers, murderers even. 
these two on either side were criminals as well. Just so happened to be crucified on the same day. Verse 32 tells us that they reviled him, Jesus, too. Can you imagine? Jesus is there suffering and dying on the cross. And the two, not just the people around him, which we'll get to in a moment, but the people beside him enduring the same thing. There's no pity from them either. They revile him. They reject him. Of course, you know by Luke's gospel that one of these men had a change of heart. He repented, crying out to Jesus to be remembered in paradise. One died in ridicule and sin. The other died in forgiveness at the side of Jesus. But in this crucifixion company, we find Jesus numbered among the transgressors. Our author here, he makes, he makes a point of emphasis that Jesus, oh, that Jesus was crucified with these uh, criminals. He, he references the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 28, and the scripture was fulfilled that saith he was numbered with the transgressors. That comes from Isaiah 58. A, a, an, a, 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 uh, Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah 58, Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy concerning the Messiah that Jews of this day will not read in their synagogues because it's such a blatant, obvious truth. This is Jesus of Nazareth who is being killed here. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, numbered among those that were guilty. Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. When did he make intercession? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The, the wording suggests that he prayed that over and over and over. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Hold back the winds of wrath. Postpone the judgment. Hold back, Father. Again and again, interceding for those around him. As far as the gambling, of course I touched on that a moment ago. They, they were gambling for his garments. You do realize that that is an absolute fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, And they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 is almost, when you read those two together, it is almost as though you're standing at the foot of the cross. They are so aligned with prophetically what would take place at the cross, it's hard to believe. It's hard. I don't see how you can, you can dismember it from prophecy directly related to the death of the Lord Jesus. All this to say, with all these surroundings and the dreadful sentence and the dreadful scene of the cross, I say all that to say this, there's more going on in this moment than the death of one being carried out of a peasant preacher. There's more going on here. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Here we see thirdly in a description how demeaning were the soldiers, how dreadful was the sentence. Also, how demoralizing were their statements. Listen to what they said in verse 29. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him among themselves with the scribes, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross and that we might see and believe. And they that were crucified with him, reviled him. Here were the statements amid all the pain and suffering as though this were not enough. Jesus endured the piercing ridicule of gawking eyes and stabbing tongues. I don't know if you've ever been in a great deal of pain. There's just been a few times in my life is that I've been in a great deal of pain. But one of the last things, when you're hurting real bad, the last thing you want to hear is just somebody talking. Just shut up and let me concentrate on my pain and deal. Have you ever been in that scene? I wish you'd just shut up and let me deal with my pain. I'm hurting so bad. Can you imagine going through that, this kind of excruciating pain with not just people talking in the background, but with people accusing? Laughing, gawking at your misery and pain. That's what Jesus is enduring on the cross. 
In their mockery, Jesus' ability was demeaned, was humiliated. Many of these revilers had witnessed the miracle working power of Jesus. No doubt. When the scribes and Pharisees wanted to bring accusation and tried to tongue-tie the Lord Jesus, they would send emissaries out to see what Jesus was doing. And many of them came back as, test, as witnesses of His miraculous deeds. And so these people no doubt had seen His miracles, and yet they were mocking Him there. They had seen His Many had seen his ability was limitless. He could change water into wine. He walked on the raging seas. To he could take the most meager meal and feed a multitude. He opened blinded eyes. He caused the, cleansed the skin of lepers. He, he caused the dead to stir and to live again. And yet they have the audacity to say, If you are the Son of God, use your power to come down from the cross. I tell you, his ability had not waned. He did not lose his omnipotent power in those moments of crucifixion. He could have called legions of angels from heaven to instantly uh, deliver him. But yet he learned obedience through suffering on the cross. Hebrew author tells us that. As incomprehensible to think, Jesus learned obedience through his suffering on the cross. Look at Mark 15, 19, or 29 through 31. And they passed by, reviled, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest in three, save thyself. Come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking and said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others himself. He cannot save. It's, it's so amazing what they said. If. You will go back to Psalm 22. You will find the echo of the same accusation by the psalmist for the one being humiliated whose nails and hands, his hands and feet are being pierced. You can find the same exact, exact humiliation given to him. He didn't come to save himself. That's the thing. Jesus did not come to save himself. What did he come to save? Mark 10, 45, from the lips of the Lord Jesus, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to stay on the cross, not come down from it. One author wrote, Calvary was no accident of history. There was no it was no invention of the devil, nor the afterthought of God. Golgotha was a divine appointment. Peter echoes this sentiment on the day of Pentecost, who in speaking to that crowd that had gathered, says, Him, Jesus, being de delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The cross was no accident. The cross was no a historical uh, uh, incidental. It was a divine act of provision. Their mocking continued. Uh, verse number 32. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross and that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with Him reviled Him. He was their Messiah. In all counts... In the fulfillment of prophecy, in every jot, in every tittle of his life, he was their Messiah. He was their king. While they lashed out in anger and ridicule, he, by his great love, was reconciling them. Those that were mocking him. Those that had scourged Him. Those that had nailed Him to the cross. Those that spit upon Him. He is reconciling them to God. Not just us, but those immediate first-hand implicators in the death of Jesus. By His great love, He was reconciling them to God by His blood. As a matter of fact, not many days hence, I firmly believe that many of these around the cross 
that were standing in mocking would embrace that cross, what Jesus was doing on that cross, and they had seen with their own eyes. Listen to Acts 6-7. This is easy to read over, but it's staggering. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. I firmly believe that some of those that were standing by the cross that hurled accusations and blasphemies at the Son of Man were later saved by the one that they had ridiculed. You know why, want to know why I believe that? Because I was one of them. I was one that had ridiculed and laughed and mocked what Jesus done on the cross. And yet He still, out of grace and mercy, saved me. I was a blasphemer. I was a reviler. And Jesus saved me. On this cross, Jesus was mediating a new covenant. Bearing, as the song sings, Bearing sin and scoffing rude, In my place condemned he stood. One author writes, All his suffering was not designed to arouse our pity, But to assure us of the extent of God's love. Song that came out several years ago is reading and putting these thoughts together flooded my mind. I dare not try to sing it, but here's its lyrics His life for mine. His life for mine. How could it ever be that He would die, God's Son would die to save a wretch like me? What love divine He gave His life for mine. What does the cross do for us? Stir us to pity over a human being going through, even a peaceful man going through such pain and anguish? No, a thousand times no. What ought to move our hearts is that He took our cross. He took our place. What love, what love divine. Last of all, how demeaning were the soldiers, how dreadful was the sentence, how demoralizing were their statements finally? How dramatic were the signs? Dramatic were the signs. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, that is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse number 37, and Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. When the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried, he gave up the, and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. During Jesus' ministry, the Jews had pleaded for, to Jesus for a sign. Give us a sign that you are the Son of God. And there was no sign given by Jesus. But here at the cross, there are no more significant signs of the dramatic, uh, dramatic events of Calvary than what we see recorded in the Word of God. When He was born in Bethlehem, God put a new star in the sky. And when he died at Calvary, God momentarily shut out a star in the, in the sky. This was no mere eclipse. Uh, you, did you catch the, I think it was a solar eclipse, maybe about four or five years ago. I come home early from work to catch it at the house. Had my little welder's glass, you know, looking at the, at the sun and how, how they just for a, just for a brief moment, Everything looked like evening. It looked like it was like 7, 8 o'clock at night. And, and it was only 4 in the afternoon. And then it was just, just moments. It brightened right back up. That's not what this is. Some people say, oh, it was just an eclipse of the sky. That's not what took place. Three hours. The harmony of the Scriptures gives us three hours. Men groped in darkness in the middle of of the afternoon. Isaac Watts wrote these memorable words in reference to the sun being doused out. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died. The man 
the creature's sin. The darkness of this hour, within this darkness, Jesus quotes the lament of David again from Psalm 22, verse number 1. Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God was forsaking His only begotten Son. Now I want you to understand something. I cannot express to you what is going on in this darkness. I cannot fully comprehend or articulate the thought that God was forsaking God in that darkness. I don't know its entire meaning. I think we see a shadow of it in the Old Testament. The Old Testament account on the great day of atonement, the the fit man comes with two he-goats. And the he-goats, two of them, there's a lot cast. And when the lot fell upon one goat, that goat's throat was slashed, its blood was shed, its body was burned on the altar. He is the sacrifice of atonement. Not necessarily a lamb, but a goat, sacrifice of atonement. The other goat, by that fit man, was led out of the camp far beyond the reaches of the location of Israel, all the way out to the furthest extent of a dry and barren land and thrust out and left behind to starve and to die alone in that wilderness. Somewhere in the shadows of what is taking place by these two goats, there is Christ the fulfillment The one atoning sacrifice for sin. Jesus, His blood is being shed. And at the same time, He is being exiled from God, from mankind. Uh, The earth wouldn't have Him. Heaven wouldn't have Him. And so they're suspended on the cross. Jesus is rejected by all. Oh God, Thou hast forsaken me. It is here Jesus was being made sin for us. Paul tells us in Galatians, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Jesus, in that moment, on that cross, became cursed of God. Was it through what He did? Was it through what He had said? Was there any action deserving of God's rejection on that cross of Jesus? The only reason is that He was the scapegoat. He was the the atoning sacrifice for us. It was the priest himself that put his hand on that atoning animal saying this animal will take our sin. Jesus Kind for kind. Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It is merely rolled over from year to year, a daily atonement. But Jesus, once and for all, shed his blood, kind for kind, for us on the cross. Therefore, being our immense, staggering, eternal substitute for our sin, Jesus died for us. 35 and 36 tell us that there's some confusion. Uh, Some really didn't even understand the words that Jesus was saying. When he talked about Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They thought he was calling for Elijah. We know from John's gospel that the shout given in verse 27 is the word tetelestai. With a great shout, tetelestai, it is finished. A cry of satisfaction, a cry of completion, a declaration of perfection. He then breathed his last. You know, crucifixion was supposed to last for a long time. That's the cruelty of it, is they didn't die quickly. Matter of fact, when when, when the soldiers came back and told Pilate that Jesus was already dead, he was surprised. It should take much longer than that. For Jesus to die. Because it takes hours. It is a constant battle for oxygen. Back and forth and back and forth. Trying to grasp at life. But here Jesus. 
when he makes that final shout, breathes out his life. You don't know why? Because nobody could kill Jesus. He was without sin. Death is off limits when it comes to Jesus, lest he yield himself to the hands of death. Jesus willingly stretched out his arms for the nails and breathed his life. He breathed out his spirit. He dismissed his body. No man could ever take his life. And then what other sign did we find? The veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. What a sign. Long had that veil stood in a separation between the holy presence of a righteous God and sinful men. Best of men were still sinful and requiring blood atonement. That veil said, stay out. That veil says, you're not worthy. You're sinful. I'm holy. That's far enough. But when Jesus died on that cross, a new and living way was made through His flesh. That temple veil was rent in twain. And whereas in the past it was a separation, now it has become an invitation. God invites all of us into that holy place. All of us can come through the veil of Jesus' death on the cross. The other sign, Mark number 1539, and the centurion which stood over against saw, saw that he had so cried out, he gave up the ghost and, and said, truly this man was the Son of God, this hardened soldier and the greatest army of the world had seen many a man die on the battlefield. But none like this man. This man that willingly stretched out his arms for the nails and bore the ridicule with not a, a single word of lashing in response. This man was something different. The other gospel accounts tell us that during the darkness there was an earthquake. The rocks rent. The world began to move under this Roman soldier's feet. He had witnessed it all. The darkness of the sky, the movement of the ground, the words of the man on the middle cross breathing out his life. He saw all of the envious ridicule of those around him, what he endured. He heard the, the prayers of Jesus constantly ring out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And truly awed by this scene, this man cries out, truly this man was the Son of God. It's been much debate down through the centuries. What did he mean? Did he mean that this man was something of a Hercules, a, a son of Zeus? Something extraordinary? We don't know. And I'll be honest, I, 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 I don't know for sure, but I wonder. Surely he heard the words that saving others, surely... He heard the words of those around him and putting all this together. Maybe indeed he did recognize this man as Christ the Son of God. Whether he did or not, I cannot say. But I do know this. With what I know and what you now know, you and I must make a choice. We have no excuse. We can recognize this is Messiah. This is Jesus, the Son of God. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, penned so many phenomenal, phenomenal hymns whose music is lost to time. They're basically poetry in our day, but beautiful poetry. One of his poems brings to light our responsibility when confronted by the cross. He wrote this as a, a young man uh, recently come to Christ. Listen to what he says. In evil long I took delight Unawed by fear or shame, or shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood. He fixed his languid eyes on me as near the cross I stood. Sure, never till my lastest breath shall I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word I spoke. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals 
my pardon too. When we look at the cross, we see the dark blackness of all of our sin and all of our shame and what it caused Jesus. And at the same time, we see what pardons, what forgives, what absolves, what cleanses, what wipes away our sin. Oh, blessed cross. Thank God Jesus made a way. Hebrews 10, 19-25. Listen to what the Hebrew author says of this cross. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. Did you hear what he said? That by the new and living way that Jesus has made for us to enter into the Father's presence, we are to hold, maintain our faith we hold fast our profession in the midst of trial, in the midst of, of difficulty, and then also we are to come together to worship God. Don't forsake each other. Don't forsake our assembling together. Exhort each other all the more. Why? Because of the cross. What brings us together every Lord's Day? The cross. What Jesus did for us on the cross. It brings us together. It causes us to come together. Oh, let's hold fast our faith. Let's hold fast to Jesus and what He's done for us on the cross. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I've, I've displayed the gospel, the good news. What's the good news? What's the good news of a good man that was crucified on a cruel cross wrongly and unjustly? I'll tell you the good news because He did it in your stead. Should have been you, He took your place. He took your place. He is that mediation that brings you to God. Why don't you take a hold of that? Why don't you come to faith in Jesus Christ? You come. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. I thank you for the cross. May, may the cross speak volumes to our hearts today. God, may we see it not as sentimental sorrow over a good man dying on a cross, but let us see it in our stead. You took the brunt. You took the full extent of the bitter dregs of God's law and His judgment in our place. Oh God, God, I pray that if I, someone here doesn't know the Lord Jesus, we pray they would embrace you, embrace your cross as their own. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.